Hello and welcome to the Great Climate Debate Podcast. I'm Jeffrey DeSena, and I'd like to thank all of you who have even tried to start listening to any of these podcasts. This will be the final episode in Season 1 of the Great Climate Debate, and whether or not there will be a Season 2 is still yet to be decided, but my life is about to become a veritable whirlwind, so I'm putting it on hold for a while. Regardless of what happens next, this has been a great success from my perspective. I have gotten to know people whom I never would have met, I've gotten a masterclass in climate science and climate change policy, I've learned some of the basic skills of modern internet media, and above all, I've realized a dream. I don't know how many times I was listening to Waking Up with Sam Harris or The Tim Ferriss Show and thought to myself, damn, I wish I could have conversations like that. As I was walking the streets of New York the other night, reviewing my most recent recordings, I realized I've done it. I'm doing the same thing as any podcast host, having conversations that I personally find just as interesting. Yes, I have a long way to go to become an interviewer like Dave Rubin or Joe Rogan, but between episode 2 and episode 8, I really surprised myself. Not to belabor the point, but I wanted to start with this because if you're considering doing something like this, uh, doing a podcast or starting a vlog or writing a book or whatever, something that you've never done before, who cares if no one but your mom listens to it or reads it or whatever, there are a thousand other reasons to undertake this kind of endeavor. When I became a guest on an amateur podcast earlier this year to talk about some of my travels, it inspired me to start my own, something that I've been considering doing for three years now. It was one of the best decisions of my life. So I want to thank all of you who have put up with this little experiment, and I hope you've taken something valuable from it, because I certainly have. But enough of the meta-analysis of podcasting, we're here to talk about climate change. Over the course of this season, I have gotten the opinions of several people, and in episode 3 I summarized what I could gather were the opinions of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and of conservative thinkers who are skeptical of the panel's conclusions. But I really haven't explained my own perspective. So I'll take advantage of the fact that I have my own platform now, and I'll get the last word. Yesterday, I finally got my first climate change skeptic on the podcast. Given the title of this podcast, I had hoped that I would be able to attract more because I find that position fascinating, and I think I've really started to figure out why. As I mentioned in episode 3, Peter Hadfield, the vlogger on YouTube who goes by the name Potholer54, illuminated a way of understanding this that I think is spot on. The narrative around climate change has been so politically divided that to be a conservative today has come to mean disregarding anyone who talks seriously about climate change. I've only seen this phenomenon from the political right, and I also haven't heard any real coherent and convincing alternative explanations for what we're seeing in the climate data. At least during the time period that I have been listening to skeptical arguments, the message has been one of ignorance and doubt, not of alternative explanations. But I've yet to hear of anyone with left-leaning political ideas who doesn't accept the mainstream narrative around climate change. This in itself ought to be a much larger clue into why there is such a divide than I think many have given credence to. I think there is plenty of evidence to support assertions of misinformation efforts funded by the fossil fuel industry, often targeted at conservative groups, and we ought not overlook the corruption of campaign financing, particularly targeted at Republican lawmakers. These factors can explain the reach of climate change skeptic arguments, but my question has been, why does this message resonate so well? 
People like Al Gore and Leonardo DiCaprio have just as much reach as any marketing firm, but their message only resonates with about half the audience, or less. What is it that conservatives buy into when they hear talks by Richard Lindzen or Roy Spencer or Richard Epstein? My conversation with my uncle, Peter Wells, helped me figure it out because I originally thought that he didn't fit the mold. When we had our pre-interview, his description of his political philosophy was so loose and undefined, his lack of affiliation with any political ideology so convincing that I thought that he had a truly unique skepticism. He is, by his very nature, extremely skeptical of just about everything and everyone. I asked him plainly if there was anyone outside his immediate family whom he actually trusts. He responded with an unhesitating, no. I wanted to challenge him and ask if he trusts other people that help him to do things in his daily life, but then I started realizing that I don't think he actually does. He does a lot of his own home improvement. When he does contract out, he hires people whom he has thoroughly vetted and sticks with them. He's an avid private aviator, but he didn't just go buy an airplane. He bought it piece by piece and built it himself. But even still, after yesterday's conversation, I've seen how even such a skeptic as Uncle Pete can get pulled into an ideological rut. Because he finds himself on the political right on fiscal issues and the political left on social issues, it's easy for him, and us, to place him in the political center with a balanced, unbiased political view. But the political spectrum is not one-dimensional. I find it much more useful to talk about values when we talk about political orientation. The work of Jonathan Haidt, as Grant Couch and I discussed in episode 4, has been invaluable to me in understanding this. If you break out moral values into six pillars, care versus harm, fairness versus cheating, liberty versus oppression, authority versus subversion, loyalty versus betrayal, and sanctity versus degradation, you can group people very nicely into a few categories, depending on how strongly they find each of these important to moral values. Modern liberals, whom I will call progressives to differentiate from liberals in the more classical and global sense of the word. Progressives only find three of these foundations to be valid moral pillars. That is, don't hurt people, don't oppress people, and don't cheat. But what Grant Couch pointed out in episode 4 is that they actually see the other three not just as invalid moral pillars, but they see the people who do see these last three as valid moral pillars as morally backwards. Conservatives, on the other hand, value all six. In addition to care, fairness, and liberty, they also make moral judgments based on respecting legitimate authority, being loyal to one's group, and respecting ethical cleanliness. Think of ideas like treating one's body like a temple. Progressives then levy the charge that conservatives are backward and value antiquated ideals, and then conservatives throw back, claiming that progressives are morally untethered because they don't respect so many ethical pillars. But there are a few wild cards out there. One of them is the group you might call classical liberals, or in modern American politics, you'd call them libertarians. They really only focus on one moral pillar, liberty. In their minds, people should be free to do whatever they want so long as it does not infringe upon the liberty of others to do what they want. Government's only role is to ensure that people don't infringe on each other's liberty. And this is exactly where Uncle Pete finds himself. To show the point, let's take his example about abortion. He agrees with progressives in that he thinks that a woman has the right to choose because he sees any interference as an infringement on the woman's liberty. 
But he agrees with conservatives in that he thinks that abortions shouldn't be funded by taxpayer dollars because that taxation would be an infringement on everyone else's liberty. This is not a balanced view, it's just a different ideology that doesn't fit nicely into our current political boxes. And about climate, he's just as guilty as anyone else of confirmation bias. He admitted as much in our conversation, and this may well be the case, so I can't accuse him of being self-righteous. What I believe has happened with my uncle, and with many libertarians, classical liberals, and conservatives, is that they have had effectively no good sources of climate change information. As Peter Hadfield noted, it has become politically unacceptable for media pundits to stray too far from the accepted narrative. The political right in the United States has found strange bedfellows in the fossil fuel industry who would prefer that we just don't talk about climate change. So they don't, and neither does just about any conservative pundit or news outlet. The few who do are dependable sources of confusion. Take Dr. Richard Lindzen. Lindzen was a climate scientist. He studied climate feedbacks and got a handful of papers published in legitimate journals. His work was heavily criticized, but at least in his publications he took the criticism in stride and made changes where necessary and defended his work when he thought the data justified it. But his last publication was several years ago. Now he is in the employ of the Cato Institute, a conservative think tank. And I do think it's important to know that Cato was founded by Charles Koch and has been heavily supported by contributions from Koch Industries, who have a massive stake in fossil fuels. But this correlation does not prove causation of the corruption of the science. Lindzen published papers challenging the consensus on climate change before collecting Cato paychecks, but his willingness to do so was almost certainly a factor that got him where he is today with the megaphone he has today. But the most important point here is that Cato is a conservative think tank. Fossil fuel support or not, they push policies that are in line with the political viewpoints of a large chunk of Americans, and they don't have an intellectual base to draw on that wants to talk about climate change. Pete said something interesting yesterday when deciding whom to listen to in the news. He said that he looks for journalism that resonates with him. In other words, he looks for people or articles that say things that make sense to him. If you tell a progressive that government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem, they'll think you're bonkers. Exactly the same as if you tell a conservative or a libertarian that I'm from the government and I'm here to help. If you listen to the speeches from any of these climate change confusionists like Richard Lindzen or Roy Spencer or John Christie or Richard Epstein and others, they will often start with some political rhetoric about stupid liberals and their absurd plan to form a world government or whatever. Something to tell their audience, I'm on your team. They're establishing their legitimate authority. Details like the fact that they are collecting a paycheck from the fossil fuel industry, directly or indirectly, doesn't matter to people like my uncle. When they say that there isn't a consensus among climate scientists, well, there's no reason to pour over the information. When they say that the IPCC is a corrupt political institution, there's no need to look into what actually makes up the IPCC or what they've actually written. When they say that we don't understand the role of water vapor in climate feedbacks, there's no reason to ask a real climate scientist about their models that fairly accurately capture a range of greenhouse gases such as water vapor. To use a word I found strikingly out of place in that conversation with Uncle Pete, the audience can have faith that what they're hearing is the truth, or at least a legitimate argument. 
And these climate change confusionists make up an outsized proportion of conservative thinkers who talk about climate change. And that's kind of absurd because there actually aren't that many of them. It's just that it's hard to find conservatives who will talk about climate science without the aim of injecting confusion into the discussion. And here, I think Uncle Pete recognized a real issue, but I think he's misinterpreted the data. There is a legitimate crisis on some American college campuses. As far as I can tell, it is limited to a handful of elite schools where students get immersed in a microculture isolated from the real world. But the number of students affected is not insignificant. If you've been watching the news, especially any right-wing news, you'll have heard about students trying to de-platform speakers whose views they don't like. Conservative thinkers have most often been the targets of this sometimes peaceful and sometimes not form of silencing. The students who participate are almost entirely from the humanities and social sciences, but it's a symptom of a larger issue. The balance of political ideology among academia has shifted heavily toward progressive, and yes, it is harder now to be a conservative thinker on campus. Again, I reference Jonathan Haidt, who has put together some fascinating statistics on this. So we find ourselves in a situation in which, overwhelmingly, it's progressives who are talking about climate change. And they often do so in a way that highlights their proposed government intervention solutions. These arguments turn off conservatives and rile up progressives who feed back more and more progressive ideas. In this echo chamber, ideas become more radical and more repulsive to conservatives. A positive feedback driving a wedge deeper into the political divide. Scott Denning was exactly right. Conservatives need to stop trying to debate the science and start talking about solutions. I stopped the interview with Uncle Pete because my final question confirmed all of this for me. When conversations start with a call for government action, condescension to conservatives, and absurd hyperbole, he's going to take everything said next as merely another excuse to give the government more power and take more of our liberties. But as soon as the solution was one that shrank the government, spurred the economy, and demanded the rest of the world to do their fair share, he was on board. Just as Scott Denning said, if you want to push small government free market ideas, that's great. As long as it encourages people to stop setting carbon on fire, the science is just fine with that. So I'm going to try to turn this method against the confusionists. If you're listening because you've got a friend or family member who doesn't accept the weight of scientific evidence supporting anthropogenic climate change, tell them to skip to this part of the episode, and let me know if it works for them. This bit of the podcast is not for big government tax-and-spend liberals. It's not for free handout, leave people on the dole socialists. It's not for the Marxist who thinks the Soviet Union might have worked out if Reagan hadn't forced them to spend themselves into oblivion. No, this bit is for those who recognize that government isn't supposed to do things quickly. The Chinese may build things quickly, but the Chinese government is also quick to strip citizens of their civil liberties, to lie to the world, and to end up causing more problems than they might be solving. This is for those Americans who get more and more frustrated as they watch their own government usurping more and more power that must have the framers of our Constitution rolling in their graves. This is an appeal to those who want to see the government run like a business, an efficient enterprise that competes in a free and fair market. This is for people who want to see those businesses succeed, because successful businesses mean rising paychecks, it means better lives for all Americans, it means more freedom for more people to decide what they do with their money. Because those who love freedom love how far we in the West have come. 
Our society is far from perfect, but it's a whole lot better than it could have been were it not for the Enlightenment thinkers who laid the groundwork for a constitutional government, and especially were it not for the actors who fought against the tyranny of the British crown, against taxation without representation, and for the actors who continue to fight in the name of liberty against all who would threaten it. But as all who have taken a military oath know, there are enemies both foreign and domestic. We who love liberty are seeing the liberty afforded us by the natural world slipping away. I cannot blame those who exploited new technologies to make the world a friendlier place for mankind, but I must blame those who have tried and continue to try to cover up the side effects of those new technologies. Our use of coal, oil, and natural gas have led to the greatest increase in human welfare in history. But if we continue to rely on them, we may end up destroying what we have achieved. The internal combustion engine, electrical generators, and vehicles that jet us around the planet at the speed of sound are all products of the scientific revolution. That same scientific method that spurred this wave of innovation has alerted us to the fact that our use of these technologies is affecting our air and water far more than our predecessors could have imagined. We have already seen changes. Higher temperatures, more extreme storms, rising sea levels, changes in ocean currents and ocean chemistry, and we are bound to see more if we stay on this path. Some changes might be good, but many will not, and change is hard. Relocating coastal cities, abandoning old farmlands and finding new ones, and adapting to risks like growing ranges for disease-carrying insects are going to take time, resources, and lots of money. But the fact that change is hard does not necessarily mean it is bad. Change forces us to grow, to become better people, to make better things. Our world changed with the invention of the internal combustion engine, the automobile, and the internet. Few of us would want to go back to a world without these things. And the world will change with the invention of energy storage that allows renewables to power cities reliably, with the invention of clean mobile energy resources like hydrogen fuel cells, and with the invention of new building methods that help us use energy more efficiently. The world has experienced the benefit of innovation, not by government mandate, but by free enterprise. This has been true for past changes, and it will remain true into the future. Governments do have a role to play, but that role should be protecting liberties, not destroying them. Policies that encourage responsible use of energy, that internalize the true cost of fossil fuels, that allow for the free competition of new technologies and ideas, these are all government actions that are compatible with conservative ideals. I'm not going to try to tell you exactly what we should do about the challenges we face. To say that they are complex would be an understatement only overshadowed by the magnitude of these challenges. But our predecessors have risen to such challenges, and so shall we. This part of the podcast is not an admonishment, not a commandment, not a demand. It's a request to all of you. I'm asking for your ideas. I want to hear your thoughts, your proposals, your solutions. Because right now, there is no climate debate. There is only a shouting match of ideologies masquerading as legitimate conversation. Let the scientists test their hypotheses and reveal the facts. But everyone in our democratic society ought to have a voice in the conversation about what we do about those facts. So in closing season one of The Great Climate Debate, I'm asking you to give me a reason to do a second season. Let's start the debate. The Earth's climate is changing. What should we do about it? This is The Great Climate Debate Podcast. I'm Jeffrey DeSena. Thank you for listening.